This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobeski, suggested we watch the 1998 film Lethal Weapon 4. But instead, we decided to watch something with a lot less dialogue and no explosions, the 1967 film Le Samurai. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Walls, and I'm your first co-host. And I'm Amber Elby, and I'm the pinch hitter. I mean... I'm actually the second co-host. Uh, and our guest today, you all know him, you all love him, executive producer Adam Gobeski. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Hey, Adam. Hola. I think you mean bonjour today. Ah, yes. Bonjour. Well, the subject of today's episode is the 1967 film Le Samurai, which features a real-life couple Elaine and Natalie Delone as on-screen love interests. So in honor of today's film, I thought we'd start off with the usual icebreaker question who is your favorite on-screen married couple so somebody that's your usual icebreaker question yeah just people don't usually answer it and i have to cut it (laughs) oh i see so i am going to go first so you all don't steal it because i know that you both love this one but i'm gonna go with far and away starring tom cruise and nicole kidman and i believe they were married when it was filmed i have not wikipedia this but uh that's my final answer So it doesn't matter if they're not still married. (laughs) Well, I think they got married afterwards. Well, I mean, obviously they're not married now. Hollywood marriages last like five minutes. So uh, I'm going to have to go with John Krasinski, Emily Blunt, who were just in A Quiet Place together, which is not my favorite movie, but I think as a couple, pretty good. Whereas I think I'm going to go with Kristen Bell and Dax Shepard in those Samsung commercials. (laughs) that was who i was gonna pick and then i'm like oh what were they in together it doesn't count they are about the cutest couple in the world and they're from michigan no kidding i didn't know that that. yeah yeah the area. all the more reason to like them Mm -hmm. you're the impetus for the episode today adam you called us all here together what's le samurai mean it means in french the samurai doesn't mean the samurai we can't even agree on this. It's going to be a very contentious episode. <laughs> I heard that's what you wanted. Yeah, yeah. Conflict. I think we can save it. <laughs> so, Adam, why did you choose this film? I don't know. Seemed like a good idea at the time, I guess. Are you regretting uh, it? <laughs> uh, no, so Charlie got me this movie for Christmas. He was like, hey, you should uh, you should watch this French crime film that I got you. And I was like, oh, funny you should give me that because I gave you a French crime film. I still haven't had a chance to watch yet. I need to do that because uh, he got you got me uh, Rafifi, which is like a diamond heist film that I've heard about. Um, yes. I haven't seen yet. It's on it's on my list of Blu-rays that I've bought and not watched yet. So it's at the top, top of the pile. I think the top of my current pile is uh, Bicycle Thieves, actually. Oh, nice. Yeah, I figured I didn't want to play into the stereotype of getting you more French Criterion Collection films. But I was like, ah, it's just too good of a movie. Which is really weird because I don't know that prior to last year I had seen a French film. (laughs) Okay, all right. I hadn't seen a French language film, I think. I mean, if you're going to count things like The Fifth Element and The Artist, I'd seen those. But as far as like French language films, I don't think I'd seen any before 2018. You haven't seen Amelie? No, I still have not seen Amelie. I'd seen this sometime in the last year, and I thought immediately, like, Adam would like this movie. Or I think people in general would like this movie. Well, so Amber, you hadn't seen this before either, correct? Correct. I hadn't heard of it until I got your email a few days ago asking to do this episode. (laughs) And... I thought upon seeing the title that Adam must have seen the title someplace and thought, ooh, a samurai movie that's in French. Perfect. But uh, I didn't actually think that was what it was when I saw the title. I will admit to having had that reaction when I saw it in like the store like a year or so ago, you know, because you sort of like as one browses, right, you go like, oh, what's the samurai? And then you read the back. Oh, this isn't about samurai at all. Put it back. Well, it's got the handsome picture of a. Alain Delon. Yes, it does. That handsome, very nondescript picture of Alain Delon. Which is weird. Like what kind of attracted me to the movie initially was that, well, I knew that Roger Ebert had cited it as one of his great films, but also the front of it kind of gave me a 
the cowboy bebop feeling. (laughs) 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 So I was like, oh, maybe I want to watch this. And there were actually a couple scenes in the movie that I'm like, this might have been where that particular scene from a certain episode was from. (laughs) You know, I didn't think about that at the time, but now I agree with you. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, yeah, so Charlie got me the Blu-ray and so then I popped it in. I was like, okay, well, he he says... (laughs) He enjoyed it, so I'll watch it. Great. And then by the end, I was like, oh, my gosh, we have to talk about this. <laughs> Impromptu podcast episode. I like it. That's right. Adam, what did you think this movie was going to be before you before you popped it in? Like past the reading the back of the cover? I don't think I had anything past the reading the back of the cover. Went with a completely open mind. More or less. I vaguely remembered Roger Ebert talking about it very dimly, but not really anything he said. I knew it wasn't actually about Samurai. So I was kind of wondering, well, I wonder why this is called the Samurai. And I have to be honest, by the end of it, I'm still not 100% sure. (laughs) Amber, how about you? Yeah, before I agreed to do this, I decided to look up a trailer of it. And uh, I found one on YouTube that was really just like him in the car at the beginning after the credits (laughs) ended with him in the different keys. And so... (laughs) I don't know if I would have watched this film based on that, but uh, I definitely watched it more for you than for my own enjoyment. And we thank you again for that. I wonder, like, I'm going to have to look up this trailer because it doesn't seem like the type of movie you can make, an, certainly not a representative trailer of. Yeah, I don't think it was a a trailer that was actually made by the production mm-hmm. company. It looked just like a kind of fan trailer, like the, the kind that show up on YouTube. But uh Based on that, I understood what I was getting into. This mod, mid-century French film, not a lot of talking, action, suspense, guys with guns, and uh, some kind of crime going on. Yeah, actually, mod's a very good word to describe this. This is a very mod movie. The music and everything. The whole aesthetic. This is something that some people might describe as French New Wave. Although I don't know if the director himself fully ascribed to that. So the director, Jean-Pierre... Uh, Melville is actually the considered to be the father of New Wave, right? So. Ah, yes. So a brief synopsis of the film. Alain Delon plays Jeff Costello, a hired assassin who we learn has been hired to kill a nightclub owner. And as a result, gets picked up by the police and gets into a lot of trouble with not just the police, but the folks who hired him to kill that man. There's not a lot you need to get through to describe the plot of this movie. It's a lot about how you get there. Right. So... It's a movie about story rather than plot. Yes, yes. And aesthetic as well. There's a lot to look at. Yes. But let's just start off at the beginning. Uh, what did you think about the opening scene we see? No, I think the question I want to ask is at what point did you realize he was in the scene? Did you notice him right away sitting on the bed? Or did it slowly dawn on you that he was there? It was For me, it was the smoke. Like when he actually took the first puff and blew it out because there was smoke hanging in the air above him anyway, which kind of made me curious. And then you can see after, you know, 30 seconds or so where it's actually coming from. And that was for me too. And that also was a signal of, oh, okay, this is going to be noir. Yeah. But we get, I don't know, maybe a minute, two full minutes while the music is playing over the introduction of him just lying in bed and his bird chirping as it does through a good half of the film. And the bird really is the hero of the story. I would say unsung hero, but it actually does sing. But uh, <laughs> it's what ended up saving him. Well, saving him for a little while. It's just, I think that's where I first realized that I was going to love this movie. I mean, I enjoyed it a lot up until this point. But when you, so you have this bird that's continually making this noise and you're like, oh, well, maybe he's just really into birds or maybe he needs something that he can show affection or love to. And then halfway to three quarters of the way through the movie, you realize he's using it as an alarm. So he knows whether somebody is in his house or not. It can be two and things. It can be, I suppose. Well, it, it helped humanize him too. It was a path, the dog type of device where honestly, I thought he was really sociopathic. And if he didn't have some kind of creature to be nice to, I would have cared a lot less about what happened to him. So it humanized him. But also when you have films like this that are so sparse in what they show, Everything it shows is important. So as soon as it showed the bird for more than about 10 seconds, I was like, that's going to be some kind of plot device or something that comes up again in the third act. Do you think it dehumanized him somewhat when you realize why 
he might have had the bird to begin with? No, because it still could have been like uh, having a string across the floor that someone would kick to show that they had been in there or something like that. There could have been some other mm, non-living true. way. Yeah, Are we I mean, you, have... don't, you don't necessarily know that's why he has the bird. It could just be that the bird tipped him off. But that wasn't the reason to have the bird. But it's the canary in the mine. But it doesn't have to be. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, my takeaway from the scenes was what Amber is saying, where it felt like it humanized him at first. And then when the bird had that aspect to it, it dehumanized him a little bit more. I'm like, oh, what I had assumed about him earlier wasn't necessarily true. Uh, see, I didn't have that reaction because for me it was, oh, he noticed that the bird had been agitated and that's how he knew someone was there. But for me, I didn't I didn't get the impression that that was the reason he had the bird. But it showed him feeding it, so he wanted it to live, but didn't show him playing with it. It's like it didn't come out of the cage ever. So he did have a very impersonal relationship, I guess, in a way. It wasn't well, his pet. It was his... If, if he'd played with it, then he would have had to have shown an emotion, and that just doesn't happen <laughs> in this movie. Right. Is that why you liked it? That was an aspect of the movie that I really wanted to talk about, was how cool and collected and basically emotionless Alain Delon is in this movie, who uh, was a pretty big movie star in France around this time. He apparently had made a number of attempts to make it in Hollywood, and it doesn't sound like any of them panned out, but in France, he was a big deal. Amber mentioned the trailer earlier, and I watched the trailer on the Criterion disc that actually was the trailer, and... You're right. It's actually quite difficult to make a trailer on this based on this movie that resembles the film in any way. But <laughs> a lot of it is just him looking like cool and collected as he does stuff. Putting his hat on. There yeah. are so many shots of him adjusting his hat. Yes. Yeah, it's his ritual. So he has a ritual whenever he leaves the house. It's just putting on his coat, turning up his collar and putting on his hat and smoothing the brim. It doesn't need to be smooth. It's It's something that he wants to do as he looks in the mirror. Right before he leaves, which is definitely cool. I think it's definitely played off for coolness factor. Do you think there's any other reason for it? Do you think there are a lot of parts of this movie? It's just like, well, let's make Jeff look cool. I mean, I think part of it is just it indicates his attention to detail, right? This is he's he's described as being very smart, very meticulous, right? Like the thing that sort of does him in is that his alibi is too good, right? That's what the police uh, chief mm-hmm. complains about basically he says you know the rest of these guys i could hold for 48 hours but him i have to let go because his alibi is too perfect and it shows that he's methodical too it never really indicates that he's done hits prior to this it, like it doesn't talk about it we don't see it but we can tell just by the way that he functions that this is not his first rodeo as they would say and uh you see that in all the little details of his actions and i do have to say too that every time he adjusted his hat i kept on thinking of white collar USA series Um, because as soon as I saw that shot, I was like, oh, whoever made white collar was obsessed with this movie. So after he leaves his house the first time, we get this, as you said, very methodical set of scenes where he's setting up his alibi for the hit. The hit itself only takes moments, really, like what he does, which he just walks straight into the back of the club, kills the guy and walks out more or less. But what impressed me about this movie so much was that the first 10 minutes or so of the movie, there's no dialogue whatsoever. It's just the movie showing you a lot of things which end up paying off actually pretty quickly. Like all of these different moments, like him going to meet his girlfriend and telling her exactly what times he's supposed to be there. And even a thing like when he goes back to the girlfriend's place later and waits outside her door for somebody else to come in to give him an alibi. It's one of those, I, I, the first time I watched the movie, I didn't realize that's what he was doing. Yeah, there's no indication there's going to be a hit. I mean, apart from the gun that you see a little bit earlier, but there's a lot of showing you things and then explaining. Um, and sometimes it's immediately after. And the thing that bothered me for about two seconds earlier than that was when he gets into the car uh, at the beginning and it just shows him kind of sitting there staring straight forward. And you don't have any indication that he's moving. He's just kind of sitting there. And then it has the shot of the ring of keys on the seat. And you realize that he's trying all the keys in the car. And that he's not just sitting there. That oh. he's actually trying to do this. <laughs> you thought it was like a weird new wave uh, symbolism <laughs> thing. Yeah. I was just like, start the car and turn on the windshield wipers. The sense of ennui just caught up with him suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> I have to stare. And that was a thing, right, where I think for a long time, for any given style of automobile, there may have only been a certain number of keys. So 
it looks like he's only interested in uh, Citroen and DSs. The two cars that he gets in, I think that he does that with, they're both Citroen and DSs. So I think he just has all the keys for that particular car, which was a popular car. So, And I'm glad the director was merciful enough that I think it took him about five tries each time instead of <laughs> yeah. 90 or 100 because he had a lot of keys. And we see the ring of keys later, too, with his apartment. Yeah, that surprised me because I didn't think that you would only have a certain set of keys or that you would have a limited number of keys for apartment locks. Okay, but that's because that's drawing a parallel with what he's doing. Oh, exactly. Right? Yeah. That's no, no, no. I'm not super complaining about it. I don't think you're necessarily supposed to believe this is exactly like, you know, this is trying to be as that's realistic as possible. That's true. I guess possible. I, yeah, I, I, they were police officers too. So I guess maybe they had the full set of keys for the apartment building. But it was yeah. the same key ring too. It was, it was, it had all of that visual mm-hmm. parallel going on. But so, um, I mean, this this is a fairly well-known story, but I think it's just worth telling right about how when Melville approached uh, Delone and asked him to be in and the movie, he came over to uh, Delon's place and started reading him the script. And after about seven or eight minutes, Delon stopped Melville and said, it's been like eight minutes and you have yet to utter a single line of dialogue. I'll do the movie. What is it called? <laughs> At which don't... point Melville tells him the samurai. So then Delon stands up, motions Melville to follow him, opens up a door into a room where the, the only furnishings are apparently like a leather couch and a samurai sword hanging over the couch. And that's it in the room. <laughs> Match made in heaven. Wow. Perfect. Uh, I liked how in the film they went out of their way to avoid having characters talking when he he takes the stolen car into the mechanics. There's no dialogue. There's pointing. Everything's very clear. It lets the audience know this has happened before. And uh, it also sets up the rest of the film for the sparse dialogue. One thing that I like, too, which we'll probably get to again later, is that uh, in the jazz club, it's not the jazz. It's not a jazz singer that he interacts with, which is kind of what I expected. It's a jazz pianist. So again, no talking. And there are so many scenes where they get away with looks instead of dialogue. Another thing that that sets up, which is fun, is that the person who talks the most in this movie is the police captain who's chasing him. Francois Perrier, I think. Yes, yes. He by far gets the most dialogue, probably the majority of it. And he doesn't he doesn't even have a name. I got done with the movie and I thought, how did I miss that? And then I had to look it up and he doesn't have a name. The character, I mean. Yeah, it's interesting how the movie sets up him and Jeff as sort of opposites of each other. Right. So like Jeff is very like methodical and deliberate with his actions, whereas the captain's, you know, prone to talk more. And it frequently feels like he's moving for the sake of moving in contrast with Jeff. But similarly, just as methodical, like he's good. Yes. And he's smart. He's about the only person that we're introduced to, at least, that has any chance of of catching Jeff. Yeah. If this movie taught me anything, it was that the French don't have as many rights as oh, yeah. do when it comes to this sort of thing. Well, I was, yep. I was thinking about that, and I thought some of it was, well, I don't understand the system. But then I thought more about, so one of the questions you had brought up before the show is like, why is this called Le Samurai? And I think there's some sort of code that Jeff is living by that maybe the police commander is not. You see him do a, a few sleazy things, especially when he comes to Jane's house and starts turning the whole place over with his thugs. Yeah, I don't know if it was true in 1967, but I think at least nowadays they can't actually do that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think they're not supposed to do that anyway. He's supposed to be sort of unscrupulous. Like he has Mm. the goal that he wants to reach, but doesn't care as much about how he gets there. When I was watching this with the police bits, I kept on thinking of Dragnet, which uh, aired in the 50s, but then came back again in 67. And And then there was a movie in 87 with Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd. Which is, of course, what I was referencing just now. As all right-minded people do. (laughs) Of course, when they hear the word dragnet. Um, But I was trying to remember how policing worked in that. And I seem to remember them bringing in these big groups of people as potential suspects and doing the lineup and everything like in this one. So I don't know if I'm misremembering it or if that was more accepted as, if not necessarily real policing, at least fictional film policing. Uh, Because it is... It's interesting to watch like the scenes of having the people up on the stage and trying to have the witnesses identify them. And it perfectly followed the rule of three where I was looking at it at first and I was like, there are four people up there. How are they going to do the rule of three? Because 
Jeff has to be the third one. But then they, they paired the woman and the man. So there were still three instances of like, not the guy, not the guy. And then it's Jeff. And then it's maybe the guy. Yeah. According to one of the uh, criterion supplements, that lineup was not actually a typical thing in France. Melville's actually borrowing that from American crime films. Oh, really? So, yeah, yeah cause it's, it's good movie making. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I was willing to accept that lineup in that system just, because it worked within the movie. Even though I was like, well, you wouldn't want the suspects to be able to see the witnesses that were identifying them. And you wouldn't want them all to be able to see each other and corroborate with each other either. I mean, it is the case that the police station looks like it's designed to be very modern, Mm -hmm. right? With like up-to-date technology and these big rooms and tons of policemen and people that they can send out. And then you compare that with like Jeff's apartment, which is like the paint's peeling and there's water damage and it's very spare and and everything's painted gray. When yeah. I I kept on noticing details of furniture, just partially because there's not that much else to look at. And the chairs in the police office were amazing. Like every chair, I really wanted it. <laughs> but yeah, the movie overall is pretty drab. Lots of grays and yeah, it feels like it wants to be a black and white film that happens to be shot in color. Like it definitely has that feel, that aesthetic that we, as we keep using that word, you know, it has that aesthetic about it. When there was color, it came with a pop and uh, they're usually orange and, and reds. And the jazz pianist has this jacket that I wanted until I realized that it was actually real animal fur, but it's (laughs) this like leopard. I don't know, some kind of cat that's very orange and stands out. And then later in the film, uh, when Jeff is walking on the street, there's this orangina ad in the background mm-hmm. and part of me was like product placement but part of me was also like it just looks cool and it pops and it gives us something else to look at because everything is so drab and it's not that the stuff is important it's just part of this mid-century decorative appeal that we keep on seeing in the lamps and in the artwork that's hanging on the walls and in the teapot that uh, he uses to heat the water in his apartment all of these little design elements that are what we expect from a film in the 60s, especially a European film. So I like that. So there's a lot of contrast in color, too, when we get to not only the pianist's apartment, which is actually connected to the office of Olivier Ray, who is the one who's actually put out the contract to begin with. But there's this awesome hallway that you have to walk down to get between the two places that's just extremely white, like as a contrast to the grays in his apartment, but all of the paintings up and down it as well. And then you get into his office and it's all this weird, like, 60s patterns with purple and sort of like maze-like on the wall. It's like and really crazy in your face. Too. Yeah, yeah. When the police are in there investigating the murder, the camera is up high. So we get a really good view of the carpet. And I thought that's pretty a cool carpet because that's what I look at. But when you when Jeff walks in, I could kind of feel like, yeah, Jeff wouldn't take this person seriously. It's just too much color. <laughs> <laughs> too ostentatious. But I wonder, too, when you're talking about seeing the Orangina advertisement, there was another advertisement I saw of, I think it was someone talking on a phone, but in black and white that really stuck out to me, too, when he was going down into one of the subways. And I don't know whether that was, I'm sure all this stuff was just in the street where they were filming. But yeah. I remember back to Alphaville, where they had a lot of product-related imagery. And I was wondering if you thought maybe that was something included on purpose or whether it was just incidental. I think it was all incidental. I think perhaps the one thing that's not necessarily incidental is all the bottles of avian water that Jeff has in his apartment. Oh, yeah. But I think all the advertisements in the metro and on the sides of the buildings, I'm sure that was just happened to be that's what was up when they were filming. Yeah. And they just happened to be cool. Yeah, because <laughs> Melville, right, has, you know, he's not part of the new wave, but he's sort of part of the new wave where they have this aesthetic, right, of just go out on location and just shoot. And so, oh, if you see something that looks cool, shoot that, right? But it's not like an intentional, like, let's put up this poster and stuff like that, like you might see in a Hollywood production. But they did choose the streets for a reason. That is true. But I doubt that reason was because they were getting those sweet kickbacks from Orangina. (laughs) No, I don't actually think they were getting kickbacks. So we're talking about Jean-Pierre Melville and his relationship with the French New Wave. So let's compare this to Alphaville, which is a movie that we watched in a previous episode with you, Adam. Uh The thing that surprised me about this movie watching it the first time was how I didn't feel challenged. (laughs) Like it, it felt super entertaining. And like, I had to watch 
everything that was going on, but I didn't feel like it was trying my patience in a way that something like <laughs> Alphaville did. What I'm thinking is that just a lot of the techniques that were used in this movie were very good and effective, and people were influenced by it, by it a lot and continued to use those things. So we talked about that in Alphaville, like, well, some of the stuff doesn't feel revolutionary because people use it now. And the stuff that tries our patience is the stuff that people decided they didn't really want to use. I think that part of it is that Melville is associated with the French New Wave, but isn't necessarily interested in the things that the French New Wave is interested mm. in. Where they sort of overlap is that the love of cinema and making movies that resemble other movies in some way. And in the sort of like, let's just go out and shoot it work ethic, right? Rather than let's build a whole bunch of sets and plan this very carefully. I think where some of the things that we saw in Alphaville frequently felt like they're trying things just for the sake of trying things. Like, well, what if we did this? What, like, what would happen? And sometimes it works really well. And sometimes you're like, what on earth are you doing? Whereas I don't think Melville has that impetus. He's not necessarily interested in film for film's sake. And seeing, well, what can we do with the actual equipment? He's much more interested in just like, let me tell the stories that I want to tell in ways that I would find interesting. I being Melville. I think that this has a really heavy dependence on visual storytelling, which would have been more revolutionary back then, at least in American cinema. I guess I don't know that much about mid-century French cinema, but uh, to have the sparse dialogue to create the tension by making your audience feel uncomfortable, not in an awkward way, but in a, I don't know exactly what's going on or why this well, is happening. But it is and it isn't, right? Because there were 20 years of silent films where, yes, you had inner titles and things like that, but there, you know, there's large stretches where you know you don't get lots of dialogue. You just get, here's the bare minimum you need, and then we're just going to show you visually the rest. And I think a lot of what Melville's doing here is throwing back to that aesthetic somewhat. Yes, but he's stripping away what silent films had in terms of set design and other visuals. And this is about as bare as it gets. It doesn't have big sets that has studio apartments where you can see the bed and the bathtub and the kitchen all in the same shot. It has very minimal everything, but you still care and you still find stuff to look at because of how everything is cut together in terms of the narrative. Well, and also by the fact of making the sets very minimal and, you know, not lush, right? That forces the viewer to focus on the people in the frame rather than the backgrounds. Yes. And it helps that they have awesome costumes. Like when Jeff is shot, my first reaction was, oh no, his jacket's ruined <laughs> because it's an awesome jacket. Yeah. And I wanted to see it more in the film. And you know, he's not going to die because it happened so early in the movie, but he did have to get a new jacket. I had trouble trying to decide if everyone dressed this cool back then or if they went especially cool for the film because I've, I mean, I've seen historical photos and people do in the past, uh, people have dressed a lot better than they do today. And this is Paris, but. I just found myself mesmerized by so many of the costumes, um, especially when we have the scenes in the jazz club and even the scenes with all of the guys in their trench coats in the police department. There is so much to look at there. Uh, and I, I don't I don't know if the original audience would have cared or if they would have been like, yeah, I have five of those jackets in my closet. It's not oh. a big deal. <laughs> uh, I suspect that there's some effort to make everything look cool. I mean, certainly these are the sorts of clothes I think people probably wore in 1967 France. I don't think we're quite to the point where like psychedelia is really going to start taking over. But yeah, there's definitely I agree with you, right? There's there's this effort to make everything just seem cool. And it's more than just the costumes, too. It's the movement of the actors, yeah. uh, the way they hold themselves, because when there isn't dialogue, when there's no uh, attempt at verbal characterization for big parts of the film, they're almost like dancers trying to tell the story. And that that added to their coolness. Yeah, and going back to like the hat brim movement, there's also another thing that Jeff does, which is that he'll put on white gloves when he's about to well, uh, I guess kill someone or attack someone. That's reportedly a, a Melville characteristic that apparently happens in some of his other films as well. Oh, nice. Is but before a murder happens, the killer will put on white editor's gloves. Oh, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, Isn't they're all in the same universe. 
Yeah. But it was a fun cue so that you knew that something crazy was about to happen after you see it the first time. I remember the first time watching him watching him walk down that hallway towards the end of the movie and seeing the white gloves on and be like, oh, man, he's got the gloves on. <laughs> and I was thinking of Dexter for a lot of this film oh, yeah. because they they have the ritual in Dexter. They have the gloves. They have the person with minimal expression. And that was another thing where I was like, OK, this is the start of like gloves being associated with death. So the other thing worth talking about, too, is that Jeff, for the sake of this hit or any hit, has to be somewhat anonymous or somewhat unrecognizable, but he does insist on wearing that coat and that hat and being very fastidious about it. I thought that was an interesting choice. Whereas he could have changed his clothes at some point too. That would have been very useful for him to do. Yeah, I noticed that too. And the first time I watched it, it sort of, um, I, I had that same thought of just like, why not when you got rid of your gloves and the gun, you could got you have switched your clothes out too, and right? He switches but... the license plate on his car. But he's wearing the same well, thing. That's so that the he's not doesn't get oh, yeah, pulled precisely. over for driving around a stolen car. I'm just saying. Yeah. So he thinks about those things, and it's almost. It seems to me that he chooses not to change his clothes. Well, well it's the second time I I watched it. I watched it twice uh, last week, and then I texted you. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, you got to do this!" And then I watched it this morning. And uh, the second time I watched it, I was like, "Oh, well, it's kind of like his armor." Yes. Right. Yes. So it's. And so, like, because I was trying to, like, figure out, okay, why is this called the samurai? And so part of that would be, like, well, this is just, like, his his attire, his, his I don't know, raiment or however you want to describe it. So that's why he wouldn't get rid of it. And it also creates tension because if he changed his outfit and dyed his hair, did something completely different to change his appearance before he went into the police station, you wouldn't sit there and think, oh, no, he's going to get caught. You'd be like, oh, he's fine. But because he was wearing the jacket with even the collar in the same position, you sit there and you think, oh, no, he's going to get caught. Why did he do this? And you worry more during the lineup scenes. By the way, I loved the moment where the one girl is like, I'm pretty sure he had a mustache. And the captain's like, why'd you shave your mustache, Jeff? He's like, (laughs) I didn't have a mustache. (laughs) So, yeah, it becomes part of his alibi because the guy who was walking in to his girlfriend's apartment as he's walking out. He's creating this alibi, making co- eye contact with this guy, recognizes specifically what he's wearing. So it's w- it's fun that he uses that to his advantage. If only you'd been more observant. Yeah, that was great. I, I laughed out loud at that both times. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, And that was when you realized, too, that the police superintendent was a formidable foe, that he was clever enough and observant enough to actually catch Jeff. So I know we've talked a little bit about Alan DeLome, but um, I love how like little emotion he shows and throughout the entire movie. Like he's just always his eyes are very steady. His mouth, you know, always sort of slightly ever so slightly frowning, but not quite. And the thing I noticed was when they did that lineup scene with all the people in the coats and hats and they bring in uh, Vinier or whatever his name is, Wiener. <laughs> Um, when they bring him in and say, okay, like take a look around and see, right. And then you looked at the other people and like their eyes are sort of like darting around a little nervously, you know, they're kind of fidgeting a bit and then they get to Jeff and his eyes are just steady on Mm -hmm. him. I'm not even sure he blinks. As he's waiting for the lineup too. everyone in line is looking around They're having these conversations, which eventually the police captain tells them all to shut up. And Jeff is just looking straight forward. Like everyone else is turned to the side and you just see him in stark relief there and not making any sound whatsoever. And all of that's part of why I kept thinking of Dexter too. It's the mm-hmm. stereotypical film sociopath. Uh, and it's funny that you said his eyes were blue. I had no idea. I watched this on a digitized VHS edition that was somehow on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry. yeah, I couldn't... Thank Amazon, you, but it's not your fault. Yeah, Amazon <laughs> is uh, Amazon's not great with a lot of their transfers. Some stuff is yeah. good and a lot of stuff is not. I'm not yeah. always jealous of your criterion, but I am now. <laughs> and I, I thought his eyes were dark, which made him seem more evil. And oh, so now no. I'm just reevaluating no, the steel character. Steel blue, just like a, at least on the criterion version. So, t- you know, presumably restored versus the yes. digitized VHS. So maybe yeah. um, color grading was you know shifted. Can we just talk about Alain Delon's steel blue eyes? Sure. Dreamy. Because, wow. <laughs> like, I looked at him and I was like, holy crap, this is a handsome dude. Mm-hmm. 
And then I saw his wife, Natalie, who plays Jane, and I was like, she's very attractive, too. They must have had beautiful babies. <laughs> Power couple. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, that you mentioned that he doesn't blink very much, because that's actually more common in older films. You don't want the hero to blink because that shows that they're vulnerable. Oh, yeah. Sure. Speaking of which, there were two times I noticed that. So, yeah, he's very stoic. He's got this piercing gaze there. The time he gets shot and he's actually dressing his wound and I think pouring iodine or something like that over it, you do see him wince a little bit. Mm -hmm. But then you also get. There's one of the scenes where he's running away from the police or trying to evade them, and he starts running. And when you see him sit down, his eyes start to dart around, and he's trying to catch his breath. So there are a couple yeah. of tip-offs that things are coming unexpectedly, or he's not in full control of the situation. And that was during the second car scene when he was uh, trying to catch his breath. Yes, yes, that was and it. it was such a good difference. Yeah, because we had had the exact same scene before, minus that difference, yeah. And then uh, when he says goodbye to Jane, right, um, and he, like, puts his head, like, into her neck, right, like, he closes his eyes and, like, his face relaxes slightly for about the only time in the movie that I, I noticed. And then, he, and then, like, the mask comes back. Like, he pulls back, the mask comes back on. You can say so much just simply by withholding anything like that for 90 minutes. And yeah. one thing that I didn't notice when I was watching it, but I noticed now as I'm sitting next to my husband who's drinking whiskey there. He never drank alcohol. He ordered the whiskey in the bar and he didn't drink it. He just left it. And he paid for and, it too. Yeah, he did. And presumably left a tip. Like it looks like there was a tip left, which meant that he was a nice guy, but <laughs> it was, it was very strange to me to, to go back and think of this where things that normal people would do, they went out of their way to show that he didn't. Yeah. They didn't show him eating either. I mean, there were cuts where he potentially could have eaten. In this three-day period, but they don't show him. They didn't show anyone eating, though, did they? I don't think so, no. Yeah, they showed other people drinking, though. Yes. Some drinking, a lot of smoking, a lot of yep. smoking. And this is back in that period where you can show people smoking and it's considered cool. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. beautiful. Like, I've, I've been in terrible situations where I'm working on sets and it's a smoking set because the characters smoke. And no oh. one who's actually in the crew smokes. And we're all having to deal with this. <laughs> but we do it because it looks awesome on film. But you shouldn't smoke. I should put that in here. <laughs> do you get that same effect with vaping? Does vaping look cool? I don't think I've seen vaping in any kind of film or TV show. I just feel like if I saw someone vaping in a TV show, I would immediately just be like, they're a tool. I really want it to be an idiocracy. Maybe they can go back and edit that in. <laughs> It seems like the sort of thing an idiot would do on TV. Like, if you want a quick hand, this could this is probably just my biases showing. But if you want to show someone just like, oh, that guy's like an idiot, just show him with his box mod vaping away <laughs> in Crocs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, what are your thoughts of Jane, Jeff's girlfriend? So we know that she's not a prostitute, but she does, I think, have a sugar daddy. <laughs> I guess. I don't know how yeah, you would I put think, that. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly the implication. Yeah. And that this is what uh, the police commander is holding over her head. Kind of implying that maybe she would be picked up for prostitution unless she cooperated. But what do you think about her character? I liked her because she's smart. She can think on her feet. Um, I don't think we get much in the term in terms of backstory, but we don't for any of the characters. Uh, we just have to make assumptions about her. And again, like with Jeff, we know this isn't the first time this has happened. This has been going on for a while. Maybe she's involved in other kind of petty crimes because she knows how to handle herself with the police. But when she was on screen, as Adam said, you looked at her. She's she's stunning. We have the little pop of red with her hair. She's just asking us to look at her. So I think that as a character and as oh, I don't want to call her an aesthetic piece because that's just completely objectifying her yeah. but uh, but that's probably I, I, what she would her function may have been to some extent back in 1967 yeah. and the same thing with the jazz pianist uh she called attention to herself she was who you would look at in out of the whole jazz ensemble she was the most interesting oh yeah and then in the scenes too where she's sitting down uh looking at the the folks in the lineup we are looking at her expression most of the time, even when there's the girl next to her who makes the mustache comment. We don't care about her. We're looking at the jazz pianist. <laughs> She's gorgeous, too, by the way. Jeff's relationship with the pianist 
is somewhat confusing to me because we know that he lets her go. He doesn't kill her when she was essentially a witness to his original crime. And then he meets up with her later, but but he also has Jane as a girlfriend. So, I mean, what is your feeling about their relationship? So my initial interpretation of their sort of relationship was a professional one. So he doesn't kill her in the hallway because he hasn't been paid to kill her. He's not someone who kills people for killing sake, right? He only does it when he's hired to Mm -hmm. do it. There's sort of a samurai aesthetic there because I was constantly trying to tie this in. Like, why is this called the samurai? Right. And then when he approaches her later, he's seeking information about the people. Well, first of all, he wants to know why she didn't immediately, you know, rat him out. And then after that, he wants to know why, or he wants to use her to get closer to the people who sort of betrayed him and that they, you know, tried to kill him instead of paying him off. So by professional, you mean she's a means to an end. He wants to use her for information. Is that right? Yes. And I think despite what the police captain says to Jane about like, though, they've been inseparable for the past two days. Like, I mean, first of all, they haven't because based on the times that the movie tells us it hasn't been two days. It's been like a day, maybe. I don't think he's necessarily interested in her romantically he's just yeah he's just trying to use her for information as you said and there really is no romance in the film um the closest things we get are jeff touching the pianist's cheek with the back of his finger and then his goodbye scene with jane but there's not really sex in it like it's very celibate and i think that it makes sense for a character who is so methodical and so professional in what he does to not allow that to get in the way of whatever business is at hand. Yeah. He is not James Bond. No, no, that is correct. This is like the anti James Bond film. Yeah. So how about that ending? Uh, sorry, let me put that in. (laughs) (laughs) That's essentially what I want (laughs) to. So what did you make of the ending? Jeff goes into the jazz bar with an unloaded gun pretending as if he's going to kill the jazz pianist. So he's gone in and he knows the police are there and he gets killed. The first time I watched it, I briefly wondered if the second contract that they had given him was not for her, but was for him, Jeff himself. Hmm. Because again, I was trying to tie this in with the samurai thing. And I was wondering if they had essentially ordered him to, you know, essentially commit seppuku because they dishon- he had dishonored their like plan by getting himself caught and stuff, right? And so this was a means to an end. I don't know the second time if I necessarily still believe that, although there's nothing in the movie that invalidates that a- approach. He doesn't want to kill her because she's done nothing to him, and she's only been targeted because this whole thing got screwed up in the first place, and so he's choosing the honorable death. See, I thought that he was done running. Because we had that scene, the second car scene, where he's out of breath, he's panicking. And this is a guy who doesn't like to think on his feet. He can. It's proven that he can. But if the world operates according to Jeff, he wants to spend five minutes adjusting his hat every time he goes outside. (laughs) So being on the run isn't what he wants. And I think you're right that this is suicide for him. But... It also helps someone else, someone who, if he has some sense of justice or social justice, this is someone who he knows why they're being killed. And he knows it's not really fair, too. When he did the first hit, he didn't know anything of why he was doing it. But there is maybe an inkling of conscience in this part where he says, no, this isn't right. I would agree with everything you said, except for the fact that I never got the sense at any point that he's not in control like you described him as panicking and i never got the sense that he was panicking it Um, it was panicking for jeff i should clarify it wasn't panicking by normal person levels but it was this it was the most scared we had seen him in the film so i never got the impression that he was scared um watching out constantly like being super like observant sure but not really scared like he knew exactly what he was doing he knew where to go he knew how to avoid the tails all that sort of stuff So here's a hypothetical question. When he steals the second car and he goes to the garage, why does he go back? Why doesn't he just leave? Well, because first of all, that's not in his code. Um, He's the the running or the abandonment. Like, okay, uh, I guess I'm not sure what we're talking about then. 
the second time he goes to get the uh, plate switched when the heat's been turned up a little bit. Why? Why doesn't he just run out of town at that point? He's got a car. Zoom. Well, because that doesn't make the pianist any safer. Oh, so he does care about her. Well, because this is all about honor, right? So my interpretation of the ending was that I got I got confused as to who the contract is really on, right? So I had that feeling as well. But I think he's trying to protect Jane because she has oh, oh, so okay. much heat what? on her. Well, he ha- she has so much heat on her simply because of him. The police are going to keep leaning on her unless he's dead. And the same thing that Amber's saying where like he's tired, you know, he can't be running all the time and he knows that the situation isn't going away. So he's like, well, I at least this is how I can get out of this situation and she'll be out of it too. Yeah, I like that because that's where he goes first. Nah, so I... running out of town wouldn't have solved the problem either. No, no, you're wrong. Oh, no, yeah? No. <laughs> okay. Yeah, don't like it. No, it's it's all about his personal honor and his personal code of ethics. I mean, it all ties in. I think that still fits because he's still doing his own honorable thing. Yeah, I agree that it feels like a form of like a ritual right, there's, suicide there's, at the end. There's any sort of things he could have done that would have taken the heat off Jane that wouldn't have resulted in that. Like what? Could have turned himself in. He could have set someone else up to be a clearer suspect and have them go for him instead, right? He clearly has the intelligence and capability to do these sorts of things. So the police captain has been on his tail the whole time. He hasn't been able to shake it. He's one step ahead. But I think the thing he's really worried about is that what are they going to do to the one person he actually really cares about i mean as close to love as we're, we're shown in this film all right i accept that your interpretation exists <laughs> okay great. i i don't like it okay yeah so i think we should tie in the alternate ending which is arguably the real ending because it was shot first uh adam do you want to tell us more about that <laughs> i think there are there are many many editors and directors yeah, out there that would argue with what you okay, just said but okay, i think okay, it's amusing. okay well then you guys set it up <laughs> Okay, but, but no, I'm going to uh, use it. Cue the music for the alternative ending. Well, the quote unquote alternate ending in that the ending that Melville originally intended until he discovered that uh, Delon had already done a similar such ending in another movie he'd done. And this incensed Melville so much that he went back and changed one small detail, which was that in the original conception, when Jeff is shot and killed, he dies with a smile on his face. And in the actual movie, so, you know, reality, he does not. I love the idea of him finally evolving toward emotion. I think that makes him a lot more interesting of a character because in other people's deaths and in situations that should have love, he has no emotion. But then finally in his own, he has emotion, but it's not the emotion we'd expect. It's happiness. It's not regret. It's not fear. It's not sadness. And I think that uh, that makes it stand out a lot more as a film. And I, of course, haven't seen the other film in which he did smile. And maybe that would change my opinion about this. But I think in this film, it would have worked. See, I disagree. I actually am happy that they went with the ending that they went with. Because to me, it showed that even in death, he was in full control. He didn't even break in death, not even like a, a smile or a death grimace or anything. He's as stoic as he was through the whole movie. And I feel like if he smiled, it just I mean, yes, it, I, it would give you that sort of like sense of like release and oh, OK, fine. But it just I just not convinced it would work with the character that they've shown you over the previous hundred and three, four minutes. Yeah, I definitely approve of the died the way he lived ending too, without a smile. <laughs> and it is the ending I expected. And I wouldn't mm, have been yeah. disappointed until Wikipedia told me after the fact that this other version existed. The only a still frame apparently exists. No actual footage. I uh, I don't know if that was because it was destroyed intentionally because I didn't need it. If it was destroyed in the fire that went through Melville's studio around the time this movie was being made. Which is the part where I mentioned that the only casualty of the fire was the bird. No. <laughs> oh, no. The, the bird died. I'm on like devastated ju- now. On June 29th. Oh, my, my birthday before I was born. <laughs> yes. So, was it the same bird throughout the whole film? I believe so, yeah. Oh. Okay. The one thing I want to talk about that we haven't really talked about yet is just the score, such as it is. Just because yeah. there's, there's not a lot of music, but what there is is... Mm, so good what instrument was that kind of keyboard thing 
uh, at the beginning, it was almost like a electronic organ. Right. Uh, like when he when he walks outside to steal the first car. Yeah, I almost wondered if it was like a Hammond organ or something. Because we're a little too early for synthesizers, right? Like 67, yeah. They're still basically playing with tape. They're not really doing electronic sounds that much at this point. So, I mean, yeah, my guess was a Hammond organ. It's definitely something I hadn't heard in other films. I liked it. The uh, yeah. the thing I would compare it to the most would maybe be Blade Runner. It had the kind of single instrument a uh, strange aesthetic that added to the overall feeling of the film without having a clear melody. Is that a good description? Sorry, I'm just looking up the composer, uh, Francois de Roubaix. He is apparently seen as a precursor of the French electronic music scene. Oh, so. well, there you go. Nice. I think we're just slightly too early for synthesizers. One thing that I kept on comparing this to in my head was Breakfast at Tiffany's because it has the same kind of aesthetic feel. It's the same decade, which a lot changed in the 60s, but um, that came out in 61. Breakfast at Tiffany's had a score that was completely different. I think it was Henry Mancini that wrote Moon River. Yeah. And so we go from this beautiful mod film that uh, has a lot of the same aesthetic elements in terms of costuming and sets. And the score is completely different in Breakfast at Tiffany's. It's very old fashioned, like 1950s. And then we move into uh, Le Samurai and it has the same visual elements, but this really modern score, as I said, I really liked the score. Um, and it, it was a reminder that the film was more ahead of its time than uh, others that were perhaps comparable to it. So what did you all think about this movie overall? Is this something you would recommend to others? Did you enjoy watching it? Obviously, on my end, I gave Adam the movie, so I wouldn't have done that <laughs> unless it was something that I enjoyed. Uh, what I love about this movie is it's one of the most efficient movies I've ever seen. I cannot think of anything in it that I would I could take out and wouldn't be missed in some way or another. Almost every piece of action is referenced later or adds to the suspense or so everything's used. And I don't know. It's just it's compelling from start to finish. And I was telling Adam that I kind of wanted to multitask a little bit when I was watching this the second time around. I like looking up stuff on my phone or doing some chores around the house and I couldn't do it. There's no way I got about five minutes in and had to rewind like specifically the, the part where Jeff is leaving the apartment. And I wanted to see if Jeff made eye contact with the guy who was coming in or not. So I, yeah, I would say def- uh, I, it's very subtle. I think he does. I'm, I'm not sure I was able to determine definitely one way or the other. As with many of the films I've talked to you about, I enjoy talking about it a lot more than I enjoyed watching it. And it's not a bad film. As Charlie said, it's very tight. It doesn't have anything you can cut, but it's not my cup of tea just because I love dialogue. So I would rather see something with a whole lot of witty banter or something like His Girl Friday than this. Like that's what I would choose for myself. But it is a really good film and it's beautiful and it's interesting. And I think that people should watch it. Um, but again, don't watch it when you're trying to do laundry. So you actually have to watch it and be invested. And I do think that it's something that improves with multiple viewings. I might have to watch it again before my rental expires so I can look at all of the little details. It is, we haven't mentioned this. It's been implied, but I'm going to be explicit. It is French. It has subtitles. Uh, and the particular one that I watched is missing subtitles. So I had to use some of my very limited college French to figure out what they were saying and what was going on. So just be aware if you're going to rent it, that uh, you're going to have to think on your feet to figure out some of the dialogue. That's a good point because I might go and rewatch this again at some point and just not pay, either not pay attention to the subtitles or turn them off completely. Cause I almost feel like it's a distraction from what's going on on the screen. Like it's so yeah. easy to miss something if you're not looking. I was trying to figure out if the dialogue was actually necessary. And I think most of the time it's not. So as for me, I really enjoyed this movie. As you could probably guess for me, contact and Charlie and be like, we got to do this movie. Got to do this movie because I hated it so much. You're a bad friend <laughs> for giving it to me. I guess that's possible, right? There could be <laughs> movies like that. It's just like, we need to talk about this. Yeah. I was pretty sure you liked it, but there was a, you know, a 5% chance that I was expecting you to just dump on this. <laughs> so um yeah no no dumping here the <laughs> the only problem i had with this movie is when the police guy is in the hotel across from jeff's apartment and he's listening to the tape or he sets up the tape recorder 
he only hits play. He doesn't hit the record button as well when he's hooked up the, <laughs> the microphone to the speaker. That's the only thing that bothered me is both times he only hits play. And I'm like, hit record. I can see it says record. You have to press them both down. But that's literally the only thing that bothered me. Everything else about this movie is just like you guys have said, it's it's plotted super tightly. It's gorgeous to look at. Holy crap is Alain Delon's eyes just amazing burrows into your soul for sure yeah i have a man crush on 1967 atlanta <laughs> so yes uh you sh- you should watch this movie doug i know you're listening watch this movie <laughs> alain delon is uh still with us he is not quite as intense in, in recent pictures i noticed but mm-hmm. and uh so yeah you should watch a good copy and the Probably by the time this is out, you, the Criterion Channel may have released. So, oh yeah, I, I assume you'll be uh, you'll have been first in line to all you cinephiles out there to sign up for the Criterion Channel now that Filmstruck's gone. So great, Adam! Thank you very much for inciting us to all watch this movie. Now that you've watched something that we thought you should watch, now is your opportunity to tell us something you think we should watch or experience. So usually this is the part where I, I like to do a, if you like this, watch that sort of thing. But in some ways, this movie is so, it's almost peerless, right? It's like, I don't know what you would suggest to watch after this. So I think I'm just going to go the complete opposite. And uh, since I mentioned Kristen Bell at the top of the show, I'm just going to mention one of my current favorite TV shows. I'm just going to take the Charlie route here. <laughs> I'm going to say that you should, if you're not already, you should absolutely be watching The Good Place. I am already, yes. Well, as Yeah, you know. I know, because I, I keep buying you the, <laughs> the DVDs. I'm like, I need you to watch this. <laughs> and the commentaries are really good on those, too. Definitely a highlight. If you've been on the fence, get off the fence and go watch The Good Place, because it's amazing. And I said it before, but I'll say it again. Um, Breakfast at Tiffany's is definitely worth watching if you like the mod kind of style. But I am with Adam here where it's hard to recommend something that is completely like this. Uh, If you want to see a good criminal film, you could go for The Sting from 1973. And that does have a lot more dialogue in it. Also, I believe it's the same composer as Breakfast at Tiffany's. Uh, If you're just like, I want a French film. I want one with a lot of action and apparently guys with dreamy eyes because that's Adam's standard. Um, (laughs) Then maybe try District B-13, which came out in 2004. And that's by Pierre Morel who also did Taken and it was made prior to Taken. And it's one of the first examples of parkour in a feature film. So not only does it have guys with eyes, it has guys with their shirts off. So Adam, if you haven't seen this, I think it's one for you. I should say too, that if you do watch District B-13, get it with the French subtitles because there's an American dubbed version and it is excruciating. So don't watch that one. So Adam recently compiled some statistics and apparently I always recommend things from... The last 10 years, usually. The last 10 years. <laughs> and today's going to be no exception. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's in theaters anymore, but at some point on VOD and Blu-ray, you should be able to see Widows. Uh, Steve McQueen directed it. It's a heist movie, but I think almost it's selling it a little bit short just to describe it as that, because then you just kind of wait for the heist to happen. And there's just so much, so many other things going on at the same time which is why I can compare it a little bit. It's just a lot of detail in the things that are going on with each character. And there's a lot of characters, so it's different in that respect. And a lot of dialogue, but it's a sort of action-y, suspenseful movie that you can kind of pick over. Uh, Thanks again, Adam. It was awesome to get the opportunity to see this movie again. I loved it just as much the second time. You're welcome. And thanks to Amber for agreeing to watch this movie at such short notice. And hopefully she enjoyed it despite the transfer on Amazon. Yes, and I am always here for you on short notice, and I will always do my best to disagree with you to make this interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Next time, we're going to make you uh, state your opinion first. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we agree with that. (laughs) Agree, agree, essentially agree. Uh, and if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, you can go to our website. It should be easy to find out how to do that straight from there, from the links on the side of the page. And we are on 
Twitter, Instagram, and sorry, Adam, still letterboxed. A movie that really has everything going for it. Acting, music, cinematography, costuming. The only thing holding me back from five stars is the fact that I'm terrified of giving any movie five stars. So that's no, no, why no, no, I'm no, no, no. If Beale Street could talk, four and a half stars. Did I give it four and a half? It's five. Yes. It's five. <laughs> With the, like, two weeks, two weeks uh, reflecting on it. But yeah, no, that's not what... By the way, Amber, that is not what the actual end of my review was. <laughs> okay. Welcome to another episode of Cinematic Respect. I'm Charlie Wallace, and I am your host today. And we've got... Two guests. Uh, no, 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 What? No, no, no. She's a co-host. She is not a guest. You are not taking this away from me like you took Rashomon from me. Hey, 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 hey. She can be a co-host, but you are the one who said that anyone who hadn't seen the movie would therefore be a guest. Yeah, I think I'm a pinch hitter. I'm just the person you guys call up like two days before. No, I said whoever chose the movie was a guest, unless the person who chose the movie was choosing it for someone, in which case then things got different. All right. So I'm Charlie Wallace and I'm your first co-host. And I'm Amber Elby and apparently I'm a co-host, but I really don't want this responsibility. There's no responsibility. (laughs) You have completed your responsibility of announcing yourself the co-host. That is it. Okay, good. So do I have to record it? for the rest of it if you want. No, I'm keeping all this. Um, Okay. Gosh. And I can tell you to cut. Yep. (laughs) Start over. Oh. No kidding.